The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. 2 Samuel 18. It says, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out with us. You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver... I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, for in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. But Joab restrained them, and they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up himself set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hands of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day. But today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimahaz ran by the way of the plain, and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchmen went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. 
The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I did not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand there. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have covered, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. There's a saying in parenting and discipline that you've probably heard before. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You may have said that. It may have been said to you before the spanking spoon found its way to your bottom. But parents sometimes say that. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you in discipline. And I, you know, kids in here, you may not believe that. Um, my kids probably don't believe that. But it grieves parents when our children are hurting, even if that's a result of our discipline. Children often don't understand or appreciate the love and wisdom of discipline. I think the author of Hebrews gets at that in Hebrews chapter 12. The idea is that discipline is painful in the moment, but it's for our good. And as a quick aside to parents, and I put myself among those that need to hear this, before we get too frustrated with our kids not responding to our discipline with things like, gee, thanks, Mom and Dad. I love that. I realize this is for my good. I appreciate you. We should give thought to how we respond to God's discipline for our good and for our holiness. And it may be that that helps us in showing grace to our own children or with anybody we come in contact with. In our passage today, God is going to make good on his intentions to bring down Absalom. David and Absalom both are reaping what they have sown. David for taking Bathsheba and having Uriah killed, and Absalom for trying to overthrow David. 
And you'll remember from last week that after David, or excuse me, after Absalom set himself up as king, David had fled Jerusalem out east. And then Absalom sought the counsel of two men, Ahithophel and Hushai. Ahithophel was regarded as wise and reliable. He was the guy you wanted to talk to if you needed advice. Hushai, on the other hand, was a known friend of David, but he faked allegiance to Absalom and was secretly working for David as as an insider, as a spy. Ahithophel's advice was, let me take a small group of soldiers in a swift precision strike and we'll take out David alone. In his plan, Absalom would get to stay at home and then Ahithophel would lead the attack on David, who was exhausted and would have no time to prepare for battle. Hushai, on the other hand, counseled Absalom to gather and personally lead a huge army, all Israel, to crush not only David, but everyone with him. On the surface, there was no good reason for Hushai's counsel to be received. But in God's providence and in answer to David's prayer, Hushai's counsel prevailed. So, Hushai sent news to David of this by two messengers, Jonathan and Ahimaaz. As we read just now, Ahimaaz comes back in the story today carrying news from the battle. In Hushai's plan, David not only had time to cross the Jordan River, but he was able to organize his troops for battle. This passage that we've read is a chapter in which nothing seems to happen the way that you think it should. David gives orders, but they will not be followed. Proud Absalom ends up humiliated in a tree. Absalom, as we saw, had set up a monument for himself, but his tomb will be a pile of rocks over a hole in the forest floor. Joab wanted the Cushite man to reach David with the news, but Ahimaaz got there first. David's men won the battle, but David was overcome with grief. And his army that should have been celebrating snuck into town as if they were the ones who had fled in defeat. We're going to take this passage in three parts, dealing with what happened before, during, and after the battle. And by the end of our time, I hope that we will see that behind David's sin, behind Absalom's treachery, behind even Joab's scheming, is the sovereign God accomplishing his good purposes. In them, he allows people to taste the bitterness of sin, and he shows us that only he can perfectly satisfy love and justice. So the first section of our text concerns the king's command. At our family retreat back in August, we had a worship gathering with our families, and uh, to try and encourage the kids to participate, especially if they aren't reading and writing yet, I encouraged them to draw a picture to follow along with the sermon today. So if there's kids in here, uh, obviously that we usually have children here and we love that, I would encourage you, if you are reading and writing, either in the kids' bulletin or a regular bulletin or on the sermon note-taking page, follow along in your Bible and with the points. And even if you're not reading and writing, if you have something to draw on, draw a picture to go with each of our points that will help you remember what we talked about today. So if you want to draw a picture for the first section, I, I guess adults can do this too, Um, you might draw a crown to remind you of the king's command. Back in chapter 11, David had stayed home while the army was out fighting. And those were the circumstances in which he sinned in the matter of Bathsheba and later with Uriah. Now, he divides his army under three generals, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, but he intends to go out with them. But his men will not have it. They say that David is too valuable to be risked in battle. And David relents. He says, whatever seems best to you, I will do. On the whole, David is pretty passive in this episode. Humanly speaking, it's Joab who's the one directing the action, calling the shots, even rebuking David. David ends up hanging back at the gate, waiting on news, and he takes his cue from his men. And it's hard to know precisely what's going on through his mind during all of this. I think at the very least, David wants to have some personal assurance that the battle can be won, the rebellion can be stopped, 
but that Absalom's life can be spared in the process. But since he, since he doesn't go into the battle himself, he orders his generals in the hearing of apparently everyone gathered there to deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And we're going to see later that the only question that David will ask in the aftermath of the battle is about Absalom. He doesn't ask for details about the battle or the victory. He simply asks about Absalom. So I think that David is probably figuring, if I can't go and see to it myself, I'll give orders that Absalom be kept alive. But the problem with that is 2 Samuel 17, 14. And that has to be in our minds throughout this whole chapter. You probably don't even need to turn a page or two in your Bible to find 2 Samuel 17, 14. It says, The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. We know David prayed for Ahithophel's counsel to fail in chapter 15, and the immediate answer he got from the Lord was the provision of Hushai, his inside man. Hushai's counsel not only gave David time to prepare for battle, but it also meant that Absalom was going to be in the battle personally rather than safe at home. And that seems to be more than David bargained for. From the passage today, you might say that David wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to win, but not at the cost of Absalom's life. After all, the sword came into David's house by his own sin. He probably feels guilty and regretful that it's come to this. But this runs aground of God's intentions to take Absalom down. Sin and grief do that to us also. They cloud our judgment. They color the understanding of the situations that we're in. And it's a reminder of how much more we should be driven to prayer for grace and for wisdom, to the help of God's people, and to the counsel and promises of God's word when we're facing intense trials and difficulties. There are few promises in the Bible as precious to me as James 1.5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So Christian, if you lack wisdom, take hold in faith of God's gracious promise to give it generously and ask him for it. Not only will he give it, it says he will not reprove you for lacking it. If you are grieving your sin, Ask God in His kindness to produce real repentance in you. That's Romans 2.4. If you are full of sorrows, pray to the Father of mercies and God of all comfort to comfort you in your affliction and to put you to work ministering to the hurting. That's 2 Corinthians 1.3 and 4. If you are anxious, let your requests be made known to God with a thankful heart. And trust his peace to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. If you're suffering a painful trial, ask the Lord to show you the fruits of endurance and godliness increasing in your life. That's James 1, 2 through 4, and Romans 5, 3 through 5. That brings us to the second movement of our text concerning Absalom's death. The battle itself is described in only three verses, which is very brief considering how much there has been uh, going in the buildup of this encounter. This is sort of a climactic moment over the last few chapters with Absalom's rebellion, David's flight, and now the battle commences and it's described very briefly. The focus really becomes Joab, Absalom, and David, and not the battle itself. Verse 6 says the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. So kids, if you're drawing, you might draw a tree to remind you of the battle in the forest. The forest is important because, remember, Hushai's plan was for Absalom to gather a huge army. And you might be thinking, how is that to David's advantage? 
that Absalom has the entire army of Israel at his disposal. It seems that it's two-sided. The first that we already talked about was the time it bought David to get across the river and gather his troops for battle. He has time to put them in sections of three and come up with some sort of strategy. The other thing that it affords David is choosing the battlefront, it seems. They end up fighting it out in the forest, and that removes the numerical advantage that the army of Israel had. Their extreme uh, wealth of soldiers is mitigated by the battle taking place in the forest. And it says some 20,000 men died. Verse 8 says the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. What in the world does that mean? If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you're wondering if there's ants walking around. If you don't get that reference, you can see me or Jeremy or one of your nerd friends after. But I, I don't think that we're supposed to imagine anthropomorphic trees in this passage. It seems, as in the case with Absalom, that soldiers probably got caught in thickets or in crevices and more died fleeing through the woods than were killed in the battle itself. But that's not to say that God is not in control of even those details. The Lord is working, putting even the forest to work to David's advantage. So it's no coincidence then that big-headed Absalom, with all of his luscious hair, gets tangled by his head in a tree. And as someone who is follically challenged... I quite appreciate the irony. It's a problem I don't have. So Absalom, it says, happens upon some of David's men. Maybe he makes a run for it on his mule. He gets his head stuck in the branches of a tree. How exactly all of this unfolded is not really the point. Chapter 17, verse 14, will not let you see anything happening as coincidental. God is working against Absalom, and in this case, on his head, which has been a theme throughout this book, actually. We saw it with Eli, Dagon, Goliath, and Saul, to name a few. Absalom's most impressive physical attribute is now stuck in a tree. This is God's judgment. And the fact that he's hanging on a tree reminds us of Deuteronomy 21:23, which says, a hanged man is cursed by God. It's another sign of God's displeasure with Absalom. And then there's the matter of Absalom losing his mule. It's an easy detail to read past, but if you go back to chapter 13, you'll see that mules were a sign of royalty. The king's sons all rode on mules. So not only is Absalom's hope for the kingdom pinned to a tree, it's quite literally running on without him. So Joab takes center stage now, starting in verse 10. One of David's men reported to Joab that he had seen Absalom hanging in a tree. We don't know what sort of shape Absalom is in at this point. We know he's alive. We know for whatever reason he's unable to free himself. But that's about all we know about Absalom. And there's an interesting conversation that takes place between this unnamed man and Joab. Joab says, you should have killed him, and I would have gladly paid you for it. But the man seems to know David and Joab well enough to know that killing the king's son against his orders isn't worth all of the money that Joab could give him. And if he did... Joab wouldn't come to his defense. He would stand aloof. And from what we have seen of both men in this book, I think he's right on both accounts. Joab says, I'm not going to argue about it anymore. I'll do it myself. He stabs Absalom in the chest with three javelins while he was still in the tree. And then he gets ten armor bearers to work together to finish Absalom off. So it seems Joab has a way to maintain some sort of deniability about what happened and who was responsible. And we're not explicitly told that David ever found out exactly how all of this happened. But now, since Joab perceives the threat has ended, he calls the troops back in. 
And they buried Absalom while the rest of Israel's army fled home. But then the author pauses for a moment. Before the action changes back to David, we're told about Absalom's burial and a monument that sometime previously he had set up for himself. And I think the purpose of that is for us to see some irony in what's happening here. He had set up this monument or pillar in remembrance of himself. But he ends up with a second monument, a pile of rocks covering his grave, which was a pit in the forest. The monument that Absalom had set up for himself is actually not the first of its kind in Samuel. The word here, and you'll probably see a footnote in your Bible, can be translated hand. Literally, Absalom set up a hand. It's probably supposed to be some indication of power or conquest or victory. But back in 1 Samuel 15, we saw Saul do the same thing. He had defeated the Amalekites, and you may remember what he did next. When he was supposed to devote them to destruction, he spared the best of them, and he was rejected as king. He died in battle. He had his head cut off, and he was nailed to a city wall. Absalom also set up a monument for himself, was also rejected as king. He ended up hanging in a tree by his head. He's killed in battle. He's tossed in a hole in the woods. Of all the things we might say about this, there's a word of warning here to anyone who would exalt themselves. God is still in the business of humbling and humiliating the proud. But the odd thing about this pillar or this monument or this hand that Absalom set up is we were just told three chapters ago or four chapters ago that Absalom had three sons. And here, Absalom said he had set up this monument because he said he had no sons to keep his name in remembrance. So which is it? Three sons or no sons? Is this the Bible contradicting itself? Probably Adam, uh, Absalom's sons had died at a young age. And it's important we not miss this because it's another indication in the text that Absalom is not God's promised king to continue David's line. Part of the covenant we saw back in 2 Samuel 7 that God made with David is that he would continue providing him male heirs. They would rule one after another. We see that ultimately culminate in Jesus, the true son of David. But Absalom now is left with no sons. He's not God's chosen king. His line will not produce the Messiah. We've seen David's sin wreaking havoc in his family. And so it seems the same thing is happening in Absalom's family too. Tragically, Absalom's name means father of peace. And in this great irony, he dies with no sons. And he's left nothing but peace in his wake. Anything but peace in his wake. The last section of our passage following the battle deals with a father's grief. Kids, you might draw a picture of someone crying as we think about David responding to this news. So we come to the runners. Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, asks Joab for permission to run and tell David of the victory. If you have been following along in this book, when people deliver news to David you might be thinking exactly what Joab is thinking. Maybe let somebody else do that today. Messengers going to David with what they think is good news have been killed on more than one occasion in this book. And since David ordered them to spare Absalom, Joab knows David is going to be upset by this. There will be no reward for you today, Ahimaaz. So, he sends a Cushite to carry the message. Let's find someone a little more expendable. Kind of like how I felt when Michael gave me Satanism in this preaching passage today. <laughs> Send the interns. So the Cushite, he runs while Ahimaaz continues to plead his case before Joab. 
Maybe Ahimaaz wanted to redeem himself from what happened in chapter 17. You remember that he was nearly caught, ruining the whole plan that Hushai had helped to contrive. Whatever the reason, Joab finally relents and Ahimaaz runs off. I like to think that he used MapQuest because he took the longer but easier route. Jeremy told me I was old for including a MapQuest reference. Um, it's true. You can just add that to the list of things to ask me about afterwards. The narrative shifts back, though, to David as the runners are on their way, and we find David waiting at the gate, and the watchman spots the runners. If David's men had been defeated in battle, the expectation is not one man running towards the city, but a whole host of people fleeing the battle. So one runner is a good sign. They believe they have a messenger with news and not evidence of people fleeing the battle. Then they see a second runner coming alone, and they assume he must also be carrying news. And somehow the messenger, or the watchman, figures out that the guy in front is Ahimaaz by the way he ran. David is convinced then it must be good news. He says Ahimaaz is a good man, he carries good news. And it is good news, it just isn't the good news that David wanted. Ahimaaz arrives and announces, all is well, the Lord has delivered you from your enemies. But David asks about Absalom, and Ahimaaz lies to him. If you look at verse 20, in the conversation Ahimaaz had with Joab, Ahimaaz knew Absalom was dead. And at this point, he may be thinking, I probably should have listened to Joab and let the Cushite do this. So he's like, well, there was a, there was a big commotion. There was a lot going on. I, I don't really know what happened. We won, but that's about as much as I can tell you. So David has him stand to the side. The Cushite then arrives with the same news of victory, and David asks the same question. Is it well with the young man Absalom? And you've got to hand it to the Cushite. He's, he's clever and delicate in the way that he answers David. He's able to give the news in about the gentlest way you can imagine without even mentioning Absalom's name. He says, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Once David knows that Absalom is dead, the victory doesn't matter anymore. He leaves, he weeps, he cries out for his son, and he wishes that he had died instead of Absalom. And now Joab re-enters the scene. Joab hears that David's grief over Absalom's death has turned the entire victory upside down. They should have been celebrating the end of the rebellion. They should have been celebrating David's deliverance. But instead, their king is beside himself with grief and they share it with him. They sneak into the city as if they were the ones who had lost and fled. It's interesting, in what amounted to a huge rout in this battle, both armies flee in shame. The day is just not going the way that you think it should. And that's extended into Joab's conversation with David, which I find pretty shocking. Joab rebukes David. For his mourning. Joab speaks to David as if they were equals, or perhaps even if David were his inferior. Look in chapter 19, verses 5 and following. You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. It's pretty harsh, 
But it shakes David up enough to realize he had better take off the sackcloth, put on the crown, and go and thank his army. Or he risks basically losing the kingdom all over again. Joab is probably exaggerating the consequences, but David gets the message and says, in verse 8 it says, The king arose and took his seat in the gate, and all the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. So David goes back into king mode, and next week we're going to see the events that take place in his return to Jerusalem. But for now, we see a man caught between love and justice, between ruling as king and caring for his son. It seems there's a complicated mixture of things going on in David's heart and mind. Compassion for his son, guilt for his sin, grief over everything that's transpired, the desire to defend himself and his kingdom, and trust that somehow, some way, the Lord is going to work all of these things out. But it was his sin that got him into this, and his sin is precisely why he can't perfectly uphold love and justice. And you and I have the same problem too. And that's why man-made religions... That's why faulty worldviews that deny the gospel can never strike the balance of God who is love and God who is just. On the one hand, some will emphasize God's love apart from his justice. And that leaves you with forms of universalism where God is more like your grandpa who winks at your sin. doesn't matter what you do or what you believe. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we'll all go to heaven. On the other hand, some will emphasize God's justice apart from his love. And that leaves you with forms of legalism, where you hope you can perform well enough to get into God's good graces. In that way of thinking, God is like a harsh master. He's difficult to please, he's quick to anger, and he's always ready with the whip. The grandpa God is an idol who serves your sin. The slave master God is one that you will wear yourself out trying to serve. Neither one is biblical. Neither one can forgive your sins. And it's either because he isn't concerned about them in the first place, or he, because he demands your perfection, and you can't achieve it. These kinds of false gods usher people to hell every day, either in blissful ignorance or slavish misery. And if you've come today serving them, there is good news. Jesus Christ is the true Son of David, the true and only Son of God. He was and is perfectly sinless. So his ability to carry out God's love and justice is not hindered by sin, like David's was and like yours and mine are. He alone is qualified to rescue sinners. He satisfied God's righteous and just wrath against sinners by living a perfectly righteous life. He died on the cross. He manifests God's great love because he took the punishment on his own shoulders instead of placing it on you and me. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah 53 or look at the screen or read part of Isaiah 53 to see how this prophecy of the Messiah is described. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. David's experience of sorrow is because of his sin. Sin in his life, 
sin and Absalom. But Jesus' experience of grief and sorrow was because of your sin and my sin. So his rejection then becomes our acceptance. His piercing becomes our peace. His wounds become our healing. His death becomes our life. His sorrow becomes our joy. So imagine then God like a parent raising his hand to punish sin. And it's almost like he says the same thing that we sometimes say. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. That's true because your sins and my sins are punished in God the Son, in the death of Christ. David wanted to substitute himself for his son, but because of his sin, he couldn't take Absalom's punishment. But in his righteous perfection, God was pleased to substitute Jesus in our place so that we don't receive the punishment we deserve. God's justice falls on Jesus, and his mercy falls on you and me. And to confirm that his justice was satisfied, he raised Jesus from the dead. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, your sins are paid for, and you receive Jesus' perfect righteousness. So we discover that he isn't the idle grandpa God. He really does hate and judge sin, and he will perfectly judge sin for every single person, either in Christ or in hell. But he's not the slave master God either. He's a kind and loving father who supplies the righteousness that he requires. If you are not a Christian, you have no claim on the promises of God. The promise to you outside of Christ is only of eternal judgment. But if you will come to Jesus, owning your sin, looking to Christ who loves you and gave himself for you, trusting the sufficiency of his death and resurrection to pay for your sins, to justify you before him, to secure your forgiveness in eternal life. If you will do that, all the promises of God are yours. And they are all yes in Christ. The call to you is to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus alone today. If you are a Christian... One thing this text points us to is trusting ourselves to the sovereign justice of God. Even and especially when we're sinned against. We are freed to love and forgive because the person sinning against you will either have their sins atoned for in Christ or they will receive eternal condemnation for them. So not only do we give grace because we have received grace from the Lord, we also never need to stoop to vengeance because God promises perfect justice. I see this a lot in my kids. Like is common among siblings, they have, they have fights and disagreements and they come to us looking for justice. I think that's one of the reasons why kids tattle. It's... it's Twisted by sin, but we all want justice. At least on other people. Maybe not so much on ourselves. But we all want justice. And when, when we mediate our kids' conflicts, that is actually the power behind the encouragement to tell them to forgive and to move on. And it's the power to tell you to forgive and to move on when you have been sinned against. If there is no justice coming from God for sins, the best thing that I could tell you to do would be to get even. But I can tell my kids, and I can tell you, sins will be dealt with justly. The Spirit empowers God's people to love and to forgive. I hope this also reminds believers of just how greatly loved you are by God. Especially as today we've given thought to reflecting on sorrows and griefs and trials and heartaches. If you find yourself in a time of sorrow or a season of doubt where you're struggling with faith, maybe you're battling against some besetting sin you're entangled in, it can be easy to question the love of God. We don't measure God's love for us by how we perceive things are going in our lives or how we are doing. 
God's love for us is measured in the crucifixion, burial, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are loved in Christ. You are forgiven in Christ. There is grace in Christ. If you don't feel loved by God, turn your gaze away from yourself and your circumstances to Christ. I also hope this text will help clear away some of the confusion that you might be experiencing if you are going through these things. Sorrow, regret, grief, discouragement, any number of things. Like for David, they can be overwhelming and they can be paralyzing. And we've got to think biblically about them. God is at work in them for our sake. And he intends to grow us in our distaste for sin and in our love for him. We're going to be spending some time at the latter half of our sermon today in Romans 8. You can turn there if you like. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 8.1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So whatever God is doing in your life as a believer, even if He's bringing down His heavy hand of discipline on you, He is not acting in wrath, but in love. It hurt Him more than it hurts you. His wrath for you was shouldered by Christ. If he has grieved you by various trials, he hasn't done it to overwhelm you, but to sanctify you. If he has convicted you of sin, he hasn't done it to cause you to despair, but to lead you to repentance. We get just a taste of the bitterness of sin in the discipline we receive as God's children. Jesus drank that cup all the way to its dregs. So whatever you are suffering, he isn't intending that for your destruction, but for your good and for his glory. My encouragement is for you to think about your life right now, especially the things that are the hardest. It may be parenting struggles. I'm talking to some of you a little older than me. I realize that the parenting struggles apparently don't end even after your kids leave home. You may be watching your grown children struggle. It may be a particular sin or addiction that you keep walking in that is suffocating you, that is robbing you of joy, that is making your life fruitless. It may be hard relationships or nagging illnesses or problems at work, the death of a loved one, feelings of depression and anxiety, all manner of spiritual warfare. And you feel that the flaming arrows of the evil one are taking your shield of faith down. My question to you is, what are you doing with those things? As you think about them, go back to a passage like Romans 8. Pray through it and meditate on it. If you're not already in Romans 8, I would encourage you to turn there as I try to illustrate this for us. Verse 1. Father, I thank you that there is no condemnation for me in Christ. Verses 15 and 16. Lord, I'm afraid. Remind me today, I am your beloved child. Testify to me by your Spirit that I belong to you. Verses 17 and 18. Father, I trust that my suffering is the pavement on the road to glory, and my sufferings are incomparable to the glory that awaits me with you. Verse 23. Father, my flesh is weak. How I long for the resurrection of this earthly body. Thank you for securing that for me by raising Jesus from the dead. Verse 26. Lord, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray it. But I trust that your Holy Spirit is interceding for me perfectly in accord with your will. So whatever the Holy Spirit is asking for, please give that to me. And please make that my prayer too. Verse 28. Lord, I don't know everything that you are doing. But I know you have called me to yourself through Jesus, so I believe that everything you are doing is for my good. Verse 31. Father, if you are for me, who can be against me? You didn't spare Jesus for my sake, and I trust that with him you will graciously give me all things. Verses 38 and 39. Lord, this trial, this sorrow, this grief, this sin, all of it, shakes me to my soul. But I know that nothing will be able to separate me from your love in Jesus Christ, my Lord. 
It was nothing other than the faithfulness of God who always keeps his promises that kept David going at this, one of the lowest points in his life. And the same is true for God's people today. Cling to the promises and faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ, whose grief and sorrow becomes your everlasting joy. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that in and through Christ we are reckoned your beloved children. What an astonishing privilege and grace it is to be called out of darkness and into your light. We who were once far off, enemies of you, spurning your grace and kindness, have been brought near to your table as your very own. Help us not profane the work Jesus has done in purchasing that for us by ignoring or demeaning the gospel in lives of sin and recklessness. Convict us. Lead us in love to repentance produce in us the fruits of faith and righteousness. We recognize trials and sorrows come our way. We don't want to grow in our love for you, in our fruitfulness, in our godliness, despite of them. That would impinge on your sovereign purposes. We want to grow through them and by means of them. So open our eyes to your good providential work in everything that happens to us. You work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And in that we rejoice. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.